Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I am honored to be joined by returning guest to the podcast, Brian Zond, to talk with him about his brand new book, The Wood Between Worlds, A Poetic Theology of the Cross. Now here on the Learner's Corner, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations and we want to create a place to where we can learn and continue to grow because I believe that you can learn from anyone and from everyone, from anything and from everything and that everything has something to teach us and there's something that we can learn from everyone. And today I'm going to be, or we're going to be learning from Brian Zond. Now, let me tell you a little bit about him, and then we will jump into the conversation. Brian, oh, I almost forgot. And if you're on this journey of lifelong learning, please subscribe to my Substack, to where I give recommendations of some of the best things that I'm currently learning from. And it's uh, it's literally from anything, from YouTube videos, to music, to podcasts, to books, and movies, and TV shows, or just quotes, stuff that is making me think. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Brian. So Brian is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, known for his theologically informed preaching and his embrace of the deep and long history of the church. Zond provides a forum for pastors to engage with leading the theologians and is a frequent conference speaker. He is the author of several books, including When Everything's on Fire, Sins in the Hands of a Loving God, a farewell to Mars and beauty will save the world. And if you enjoyed this conversation, check out the show notes for my previous conversation with him as well. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Brian, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you, Caleb. Nice to be invited. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, you know, one of the places that I like to begin uh, a lot of conversations, especially with people who have created uh, works of art, and in this case, it's your book, The World or The Wood Between Worlds, is I love hearing the origin story mm-hmm. of stuff. And so... I would love to hear, how did this idea for this book begin for you? You know, it began the first time we walked the Camino de Santiago. This is, for those that don't know, this is, uh, well, the the most famous route is the Frances route. It's a pilgrim route in in northern Spain that's 1,200 years old. Uh, The the, the most famous classic route begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, and uh, 500 miles later, you arrive in Santiago de Compostela. And my wife and I, Perry, were walking it for the first time. We've since walked it four times now. But for the first time in 2016, we began on September 14th, which was Holy Cross Day, which was purely by accident. Um, and the first day is a hard day. You, you, it's about 15 miles and you cross the Pyrenees. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a day. And uh, there's only one place to stay. I mean, you arrive in Roncesvalles, Spain, and there's this large monastery that houses all of these pilgrims. 
And we'd gotten settled in there and I had gone to their chapel. And I was just sitting in the chapel after my first day, long day on this Camino. And I'm looking at the crucifix in the chapel. And I felt like the spirit said, gave me some directions for this Camino. Enter every church you can, find the crucifix, ask, what does this mean? And don't be too quick to give an answer. I, I felt like the Spirit was giving me that direction. And so I did. And for the next 40 days, 500 miles, we were in multiple churches and chapels every day. And every time I would find the crucifix, look at it, ask the question, what does this mean? And resist giving a quick answer. I would just ponder it. And so in some ways, that first Camino back in 2016 was a 500-mile, 40-day walking meditation on the cross. And so, you know, these years later, and after having done that, then I was prepared maybe to say some things. So that's that's the origin story. That's, that's where we're beginning. I think it is an interesting uh, way for... Uh, I mean, I, I I wasn't like I didn't like know I was going to write a book or something like that. Uh, I just that's that's the practice during that first Camino that becomes the soil from which eventually this book would grow out of. What uh, would you find that you learned or gained or um, yeah after those first like forty days of like asking that question? Well, what's interesting is a um, couple, couple of things I want to say. First of all, I am a Protestant by default. I'm, by, by default, I mean I just that's what I, I'm. I'm not Orthodox or Catholic, so I guess I guess that leaves Protestant. Uh, I'm not really protesting anything, but but as a Protestant, I haven't been. I have now, but I mean earlier in life, I wasn't regularly around crucifixes. You know, in the Protestant world, those are not as common. You see it in the Anglican world, but not too much in the more low church Protestant world. We opt more for the for the more abstract cross without a figure on it. And uh, so, so first of all, I'm, I'm encountering the crucifix daily, multiple times daily. And because we're on the move, because we're on a pilgrimage, it's not the same one. It's in fact, it's a different one every time. And I found that very interesting. I thought, well, I'm seeing a different one every day or several times a day. And they were, these aren't mass produced. I mean, most of them are probably quite old. These were original works of religious art. And there was a whole range of crucifixes. Some were, I would say, more artistic than others. Some were better crafted than others. And some, Jesus was more serene, actually kind of like more in front of the cross and upon it. Others depicted his anguish. Others depicted his regal nature. Others depicted maybe the sorrow of those that were gathered around it. And I thought, well, and it began to, I began to say, okay, there are many ways of looking at the cross. And so that's why in the prelude to the book, I talk about it being kaleidoscopic, you know, mm -hmm. a kaleidoscope, how, how you see these images, the geometric designs and colors, and then you, you turn it a click, 
and then it changes. Yeah. And so that's what was happening. I was like, oh, I, I see, I think maybe, maybe I see this message in the cross today, but you know, a few hours later I see another one and I see a different message. And so that that was I think that was very important because I I, I am convinced that one of the worst things we do with what we might call atonement theology, that is attempting to understand and articulate how it is that the cross is salvific, I think one of the worst things we do is try to reduce it to a single meaning. Hmm. As if, okay, here's what the cross means, dun da dun da dun da dun All done. Next question, please. I, I think that's, that's terrible. I think it's terrible theologically. I think it's even worse uh, spiritually. In one sense, I think we're we're never done with the cross. We can say, I see this, and now I see this, and now I see this. It doesn't mean that every take that anybody would have on the cross would be correct, because I don't think that's true. But neither do I think it's true that you can, in a nice, tidy, neat way, reduce it to a sentence or two. Uh, no. So I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> but that's this is my rambling response. Uh, no. No. That's great. You know, what? what's a... Uh... What's an aspect of the cross that that doesn't get as much airplay as mm-hmm. as maybe it um, deserves or for for one reason or another? Um, it just doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, in in the book, the wood between the worlds, the way it's structured, it's nineteen chapters and then mm-hmm. kind of on poem at the end. So essentially 20 chapters, which which would be me looking at it 20 different times. And, you know, I am in no way suggesting, okay, here are the 20, you know, definitive interpretations of the cross. No, I'm sure there's 200 or 2,000 or infinite. I don't know. Um, I, I would say that, one, I mean, I don't know which one to pick. So I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about the book here, and, you know, I got there's all kinds of ones. I think... That one thing that gets regularly overlooked is how the cross shames the principalities and powers. This is a very interesting move that the Apostle Paul makes. I mean, it's 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 there tacitly in all of the scriptures that talk about the cross or 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 you know communicate the events of Good Friday, but Paul makes it explicit in Colossians chapter two. Now, a little background. Uh, when the Romans crucified people, which was appallingly common, you know, sometimes we think, you know, be, be, because of the significance we place upon the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, we kind of tend to think this was an exotic, rare thing. It wasn't. It was distressingly common. And this was part of how the Romans just, you know, psychologically terrorized an occupied populace. I mean, their message was, you resist Rome, this is what can happen to you. And when the, when the Romans crucified people, they crucified them naked. And this was part of the heaping of shame upon the victim. And, and we, we kind of sense that, because even today, you know, it's, it's almost unheard of to depict Christ crucified as entirely naked. I mean, that's that's almost that's a that's a level of realism that even to this day we we don't feel like we can bear. But Jesus was stripped naked and crucified. But Paul says, 
that when the principalities and powers crucified Jesus, it wasn't Jesus who was stripped and it wasn't Jesus who was ashamed. It was the principalities and powers who were stripped and they were put to open shame, he says. In other words, you understand that, that when Jesus was crucified, behind that is, you know, the marbled hall of justice and, you know, the gilded world of religion. So, so it, it, crucifixion was done with an air of authority, that this is right and this is just. But, you know, and, and by the way, when I talk about the cross, I always mean the crucifixion of the crucified and risen Savior, because they, they belong together. It's, it's only in the light of the resurrection that we have any hope of interpreting the cross. So that's always assumed there. In the light of the crucified and risen Christ, we realize that the principalities and powers, and when I use that term, I mean, well, the principalities and powers, I mean, they're very rich, they're very powerful, they're very religious, uh, the institutions they represent, represent, and the and the spirit that operates through them. They would say, um, we have the right to rule because we are wise and just, but the cross shames them. It says, no, you're not wise and you're not just. You're simply greedy for power. And the cross exposes you. The, 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 the cross strips you of any pretense of wisdom or justice or nobility or righteousness and exposes you as nothing more than making a naked bid for power. Now, to, now to get to that interpretation, though, you have to sometimes um, move beyond some, what I would set for this faulty understandings of the cross, that, that ultimately the Father was somehow behind the crucifixion, that somehow the Father is implicated as the source of this shame and violence that, he, that is heaped upon the Son. No, because if you do that, then you tend to move towards there's only a single meaning of the cross and the principalities and powers, they go scot-free. Yeah. So now, now, now we're deep into the weeds of atonement theory, but mm -hmm. there's several I mentioned there. In the book, I, I, as you get later into the book, I think there's some chapters that probably will surprise people that that this could be a part. I talk about capital punishment. I talk about war. I talk about uh, the lynching of of black young men in America in the early part of the 20th century. And so those are all parts that, that people probably don't readily think of. But see, that's what happens once you have said once you've realized the cross is not one thing, but many things, then it opens up the door for us to have a deeper conversation. But I guess the first one I sort of just drifted to was how the cross, in fact, shames the principalities and powers. Yeah, you know, and, and that makes me think of, of another one. And, and you mentioned like some of the, I guess some of the applications of this, but would you mind talking a little bit about how the, the cross and the crucifixion subverts violence too? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I think I think it's the ultimate repudiation, the divine repudiation of violence. But but again, you have to interpret it. If you if you posit the Father as the source of the violence inflicted upon the Son, then this all collapses. 
But of course, that's bad theology from the get-go because now you've introduced violence into the Trinity. I mean, this this eternal community, this internal community of love flowing between Father, Son, and Spirit is somehow now you're going to put violence in there. No, uh, the violence is entirely human. The violence of Good Friday or human slash demonic. Um, but the love is entirely divine. The, the cross is not what God inflicts upon his son in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. All right, so what, what we see then is that the world is not saved by inflicting violence, but by enduring violence and forgiving. That Christ opens up a new world. So I talk about, that actually shows up in some ways, I haven't thought about this, Caleb, until just now. Mm -hmm. That that theme of the cross subverting violence might very well show up in every chapter in one form or another. Yeah. I had not thought about that. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like you know, that. Well, go ahead. No, I, I was, I was going to move on to another thing. So if you have any other thoughts, feel free to share them. Um, well, just, just to say that... Um, yeah, I mean, once once you you have to under you have to discern the source of the violence. Is it coming? I mean, where do we find God on Good Friday? Is He working through and with Pilate to bring forth an unjust condemnation? Is He working with Caiaphas to bring forth a blasphemous accusation? No, no, He's God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not reconciling Himself to the world, but reconciling the world to Himself. And so either either the world is saved by killing the bad guys or there's another way. And if the world is going to be saved by just killing the bad guys, which is, you know, this primitive idea that won't go away, then God didn't need to send his son. He could have just sent an army. In fact, when Jesus says, don't you think that I can appeal to my father and he'll send 12 legions of angels in the moment that Peter is seeking to employ violence? there in the Garden of Gethsemane, towards what he believes is a good and righteous end. And Jesus says, look, if you want violence, I don't need you and your piddly sword. You know, if if I want, you know, fr from the Trinity, we can bring untold violence, but that's not going to save the world. And so, no, this is, this is the cup that I must drink. I mean, I'm feeling like right now I should have had another chapter after <laughs> that that didn't make that quite as explicit. I like, thank you, Caleb. All right, we well, can I was gonna say in like five or ten years when you do like the revised edition, you can yeah, you can update it and add it then. I mean, um, I've had that thought with you know the the book came before this when everything's mm -hmm. on fire. There is a chapter that I just can't believe. I, I, that I didn't, de I know we're not supposed to be talking about that book, but that I didn't deal with Thomas. Mm. That, you know, doubting Thomas, who yeah. on the Sunday, who, who who misses Easter Sunday. I have no idea how you're an apostle and you're not in church on Easter, <laughs> but he wasn't. And, and his 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 struggle to believe, that that's like perfect for when everything's on fire and I didn't do it. I've, yeah. I've sent spoken on it and done things on it but so you know that that's the plight of an author that you yeah. know it has to be done at some point but then you find oh, i could have been better oh i could have added this but 
Yeah. I, I mean, you got me intrigued now, please tease out some, some of your thoughts about doubting Thomas or Thomas. Well, what's, well, what's interesting about how you really play with it is that Thomas is known as Didymus, Thomas, Thomas, the twin. So, again, we know we have these brothers and you have James and John, you have uh, Peter and Andrew are brothers, but Thomas is a twin, but we don't know who his twin is. Except that we do. We're the twin. Thomas is like this man born out of time. He is a modern empiricist because he has the witness of 10 apostles. <laughs> Say, hey, we've seen the Lord. He's risen. I mean, an apostolic witness from 10 friends. I mean, those are credible people. But he says, no, no, no. Unless I see the nails, the nail prints in his hands. Unless, unless I touch the hole in his side, two, two bits of empirical evidence, sight and touch, I will not believe. I've, I've made a decision that what I believe will be entirely based upon empirical evidence and not any kind of revelation or credible witness. That's, that's the plight within modernity. And then how, how we have to deal with that and how Thomas actually does come to a place of faith. But Jesus says, look, uh, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. And it isn't doubt. We call him doubting Thomas. It isn't doubt that was his problem. Because he doesn't say, there, the verb there isn't, isn't that, that, well, I feel like I need to, we're off the subject here, but you know, what the heck? Can do what we want. Nobody's hey, it's it's a good conversation. That's all that matters. What to do here. So, um, so in John chapter twenty, <clears throat> verse, um, where do I start here? Verse twenty-seven. Then Jesus said to Thomas, "Put your finger here." and see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it in my side, do not, a lot of translations translate that doubt, but it's not doubt. Diacrino is, is kind of, that's doubt, but it's not that word. It's apistis, it's do not be, or do not unbelieve, but believe. So th there's a difference between, because earlier Thomas has said, um, well, in just in verse 25, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and, and, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. I choose not to believe. So, so it isn't, doubt isn't a problem. Doubt, doubt is, is, is the, a phenomenon experienced by all who seek to believe. It was that he had said, I will accept no evidence other than that which belongs to the realm of materialism. And well, well, then that that's very limiting. I mean, you can learn a lot that way. You can you can learn a lot about the material world, but then that assumes that's all there is, and there's a whole world that lies beyond that. That then you'll have no access to, if you're not going to participate in some degree of revelation that is responded to by faith. But that should have been another chapter in <laughs> everything. Yeah, I was going to say that actually makes me think of uh, something that you, you write about in the wood between worlds too. Um, so th this is the quote, a medical 
or historical mm-hmm. critical reading of the text leads to a single meaning that has little to no bearing upon our lives. A mystical reading of the text leads us into a holy labyrinth where we can explore the mystery of Chris of uh of Christmas. I think it's uh, maybe I typed it wrong. Uh Christmas or Christianity and its multi-layered uh meanings. Yeah. That that's that's a passage where I'm dealing with John John the author of the fourth gospel speaking of seeing water and blood flowing from the side of Jesus. And I give the example, if you read patristic or medieval commentators, they see this as a rich source of mystical thought and revelation and meditation. Uh, if you read modern commentators, they, they want to treat it as, as you know, CSI stuff and... <laughs> And try to come up with a forensic medical analysis of the cause of death of Jesus of Nazareth. And I think that's just entirely missing the point. Uh, but it shows you it shows you some of the predicament that we have uh, arrived at in allowing um, modernity to completely dominate how we interpret Scripture. Look, I, I like historical Jesus research. In as far as it goes, saying that as much as I can understand Jesus in his historical context, I find value in that. But if that's the only way you approach Scripture, the problem is, is it it absolutely reduces the text to a single meaning that you're trying to arrive at, as if we're just reading journalism, rather than understanding what this is that this is theology done in the form of gospel, done in the form of narrative and story, and that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not view themselves as journalists, investigative reporters. That's not what they're doing at all. I mean, yes, they, they are working from historical events, but they are working creatively and theologically, mystically, and spiritually. And if we don't read the text that way, it's an impoverished reading. And you see it, it's what's interesting is you see both the extreme, let's say, right fundamentalism and the far left progressivism within Christianity do the same thing. Now, they arrive at different conclusions. They kind of do it differently, but it's still the same. It's two sides of the same empiricist coin that they're, they're unwilling to engage in a mystical reading of the text. Fundamentals don't want to do that. You know, the Jesus seminar doesn't want to do that. And I think they're they're both really making the same mistake. Talk talk to me about like how we can like how we can like faithfully live in that tension between the like there are there are things about our faith that we can know. And yet at the same time, just as you're talking about, there is, there is the, the mist, the mysticism, there is the, the mysteriousness of it. And talk to me about like how we can faithfully engage in both of those things with what we know and what we can't know and what we just have to. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have to be cognizant 
of what human beings are. Are, are, are we merely just a thinking animal? Or actually, do we have truly a, a spiritual component to our being that is non-material? Look, I'm all for rational thought. I'm all for reason. Totally for it. I'm just saying that when you reach the limit of reason, you haven't reached the limit of the phenomenon of being. That there is, as Blaise Pascal said, the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. Okay, and Blaise Pascal is not primarily a mystic, although he's had mystical experiences. He's a mathematician that is known as the father of the modern computer. He's a very rational thinker, but he's also he also just realizes that there is that that you cannot account for the phenomenon of being through materialism alone. And so, I mean, one example of that would be just the reality of love. I mean, do you just want to say, okay, what is love? Well, love is the result of an evolutionary process that helps the survival of the species, and we learn to care, you know, have a pair bond and care for children. You know. Well, I'm not denying any of that's true. I'm not denying that any of that's untrue. Yeah, I think that's, that's all part of it. But when it's all said and done, do you honestly think that love is nothing more than the process of evolution and hormones? I, I think the vast majority of human beings goes, no, no. I, I know from my own experience that love is also transcendent to all of that. Mm -hmm. um, but what we've been taught, what we've been told in modernity is that your experience with the reality of things like love, God, faith, prayer is invalid. And to, to, to which this is, this is just the arrogance of modernity. And this is where, in one sense, post-modernity does us a favor. It's not necessarily a friend of faith, but, but at least post-modernity does us a favor and saying, you know what, modernity, I've been paying attention to you. And you're always against tradition. You're against tradition. You're, you have this area. I don't, I don't accept any tradition. You know, this is the age of reason, Thomas Paine, that sort of thing. And post-modernity says, you know what? You're just a tradition of critiquing all other traditions. I think you're full of it. <laughs> um. and, so, and so, and and by the way, a philosophy of logical positivism or pure materialism that that everything can be accounted for by simply a materialist analysis, that's actually very, I don't know, that's almost late 19th, early 20th century, hardly aimed into the 20th century philosophy. I mean, it may get, it may be common in popular culture, but I promise you it doesn't represent current philosophical thought. People are holding on to some old ideas if they think that way. I mean, if nothing else, you know, hello, the world of quantum physics. You think, you think some of my, my claims about mysticism are crazy? Whoa, wait till you encounter quantum physics. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I want to go back. Um, to what you mentioned about love, because it makes me think of, and I, and I can't remember what the quote is, but I remember it's on the title page of one of your chapters. You say that we need to pay attention either to the lovers or the people who love and, mm. and the theologians need to sit back and listen. Yeah. I, I'm going to try to look that up. It's a quote from Hansers von Balthasar. And I want to get the, I want to get the quote right. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, let's see what chapter it might be. It might be from the chapter. Uh, uh, I love Supreme. That's my guess. <laughs> I don't know if it is or not, though. So I'm, I'm going to that chapter and seeing it. Yes. Uh, the quote precisely is, lovers are the ones who know the most about God. The theologians must listen to them. Hansers von Balthasar, love alone is credible. By the way, kid, did, did you, you probably, did you, you probably got like a. a I do. A, I, no, I got, I got the finished copy. I tell you what. See, it's I'm beautiful. not posting because I'm not, I didn't design the cover. I mean, dang it. It's beautiful. When was it's, the last time you saw a book that looked that good? Yeah. I've only, I've only had it for just about a week. Yeah. I, I got it. I I saw it eight days ago for the first time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they had, of course, they'd communicated to me. They'd sent me files, but I didn't know <laughs> until, it you know, a box of them showed up at my house. Yeah. And I was, I was like, literally like, what? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, one the, it's one of the most beautiful books oh. I've ever seen in my life. I mean, honestly. Oh. Very much. I, I second that. I I love... I mean, I um, sent a message to IVP. I said, I don't know, because I don't know. I mean, I have the people I you know, work with there, but I don't know who the design team is or who's in charge. Yeah. I said, whoever they are, pass on my compliments. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's so fitting to, because one of the big things that you talk about in the book, and we've, we've been alluding to it and talking about it as well, is the power of art. And the the, part, the power of artistry, and so it just it feels very. Art. There's yeah. a lot of art in the book, in the sense yeah. of actually 16 art images, but I refer to it even more than that. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I was just saying it. It feels very congruent and very consistent that the book, that the 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 design of the book would be would yeah. just have such a strong artistic flair. You know, it. kudos to my publisher that they got that. They, I mean, they read the book, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. I mean, even the design team is what I mean, and thought, okay, art is a art and beauty are central themes to this book. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to have a beautiful artistic cover, and man, mm -hmm. they pulled it off. I was going to say, and I, and I know that we've we've talked about it, we've alluded to it a little bit, but would you mind talking like more directly to the power of beauty and artistry? Yeah. As it pertains to the cross and even even to our faith as well. This, this this is the thing, Caleb. I, I mean, I, yes, I'm happy to talk about this. I'm trying to. I'm thinking where to start. So, so there's 16 images in the book. About half of them are probably my own photos. Half of them are public domain. You know, great artistic pieces in museums that are public domain now. And then there's one from Ivanka Demchuk, a modern uh, iconographer in Lviv, Ukraine. And she graciously gave me, I offered to pay her, but she, no, she said, no, just please use, use this image. So, but, but we're used to going to museums or wherever I'm sitting here, this, I'm actually at my writing desk. And I talk about this in the book. If you remember, I talk about this, this cross. Mm -hmm. It's at my writing desk, which is, uh, I like to think of it as presiding over my writing. It's beautiful. Oh yeah. I mean, it, no, that's that's it's it's really beautiful. Um, 
But here's the thing. I mean, people, if, if I say this, this painting or this crucif this painting of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is beautiful, like Montaigne's um, crucifixion or uh, Fra Angelico's work in Florence. I mean, people go, yeah, 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 I get that. What, what are we depicting as beautiful? We're depicting the torture and execution of a human being by nailing them to a tree as beautiful. I, you just got to stop there and go, well, if you think about it anthropolog anthropologically, that's crazy. And, and there was a time in my life, I'd say like maybe, I don't know, in my 20s or whatever, where I, where I kind of thought, I would have these thoughts. I would thought, well, it, it wasn't like that. It wasn't, why, why do we depict the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in terms of beauty? Why do we do that? And I thought it, it wasn't like that. And insofar as I go with that, that's true. I mean, if, if we had a journalistic photograph of the events of Good Friday at Golgotha, you know, the Jerusalem Post went out there and took a picture. And we have it. We might look at it once, regret that we had, and never look at it again because it would be it would be purely grotesque. Because look, this is the whole point of crucifixion. The Romans are not trying to create art; mm -hmm. <laughs> they are trying to terrorize people. So, do we stop there though, and then say, okay, so all of these beautiful depictions of Christ crucified are a mistake? No. The role of the artist is not that of the journalist. The role of the journalist is simply to give us the, the raw data, just the facts. The artist goes far beyond that. So, for example, if you think of uh, Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night, his most famous painting, most people know what that is, with those swirls of stars. Mm -hmm. Is that a accurate depiction of a starry night. I mean, if, if you go out on a clear night and look up at the heavens, does it is there is a one is there a one-to-one -one correlation between what you see with your eyes and what you see on the canvas of Vincent Van Gogh? No, of course not. But that is what Van Gogh is trying to do. Van Gogh is not trying to just replicate what you can see. He's trying to awaken us. He said, hey, 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 wake up. There's beauty and grandeur all around you. And so that what we see with our eyes on a starry night, what, what we, I said this way, what we see on Van Gogh's canvas is what should happen within us. Within us. When we see the beauty, the majesty, the grandeur of the starry night. And so now we come back to the cross Yes, yes, the cross involves the execution of three men by the Roman government circa AD 30 by nailing them to a tree until they're dead. All of that's ugly, but that's not all that's going on. I mean, we as Christians confess, no, this is where the world is being saved. This is where the sin of the world coalesces into a hideous singularity in order that it might be forgiven in mass. I mean, it, it isn't just the horror and the ugliness and the violence 
of crucifixion that is present on that day. There's also, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so there is, in fact, beauty present. And when artists depict the crucifixion in terms of beauty, they are helping us see what we may have overlooked. Mm-hmm. But, but wanna... I mean, I, I wish I, I'm, I, I would rather people be scandalized than just bored. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's why, I, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to, in, in, in the very first, first pages, very, yeah. first few pages of the book, I I didn't I didn't put this image in the book one because I couldn't find the source and two if I had I'm pretty sure IVP wouldn't have let me anyway <laughs> but I did they did let me describe it though and so I saw a cartoon one time and uh, two space aliens have landed they've got their 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 flying saucer and they've landed on Earth. Little cockpit thing is open. They've climbed out. He's, you know, you know, typical aliens, right? Because we we always depict them a certain sort of way. These space aliens, and they happen to be standing in front of a life-size roadside cruc- crucifix, like the kind you see a lot in Spain and some other places. <laughs> and one space alien is saying to the other, "You know what we need to do? We need to get the f out of here. That's what we need to do." <laughs> which is, which is funny. Because there's so much truth there. That, that that in their little alien minds, they're thinking, I don't know what's going on here, but this place doesn't seem safe. <laughs> and they're not wrong. And they're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, so, so one of the first things I want to do in the book is help people just, just wake up to the fact that the most depicted event <laughs> in human history is that of nailing a naked man to a tree. That seems significant. We shouldn't just be like, oh, yeah, it's just a crucifix. No, we should pause. Why is that the most depicted event in history? Yeah. You know, I, I would regret it if I didn't ask you because one, one of the forms of art that you use, uh, and I think it takes up a whole chapter, is you talk about the Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. Too. As, as that was an favorite chapter to write because I just I enjoyed that chapter. Yeah, I was gonna say tea, tease out a little bit for us. I've done like, this is this you know the book isn't out yet, and I've done I don't know this is maybe like a third podcast I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, be interviewed on this book. Someone asked me last week what was my favorite chapter in the book, which I thought that was a cool question. I didn't really know. Yeah, I I, I I've, I've decided that it actually is chapter nineteen. The 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 last chapter before the poem the center that holds but the answer i gave was chapter 10 because that was also that's one one ring to rule them all yeah that one was fun i say fun i mean i'm dealing with a serious subject but still it was i enjoyed writing that chapter because i got to work with tolkien so much yeah Yeah. and uh i think that's the chapter also where i get to quote fleming rutledge quoting bob dylan (laughs) Which I just think is like, that's awesome. Yeah. So I tell people, the door is open for someone to quote Brian Zahn, quoting Fleming Rutledge, (laughs) quoting Bob Dylan. It's like some form of inception or something. But yeah, yeah. What I'm doing with that chapter is that the ring of power is, has remained so seductive for the church. 
And one of the messages in Tolkien's great masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, but one of the recurring themes, one of the most important themes, is that no one is capable of bearing the ring of power and not being corrupted by it. Now, the, the very powerful, the wise and very powerful won't even touch it. Gandalf won't touch it. Don't mm -hmm. tempt me. Aragorn won't touch it. Uh, they all have their moments of temptation, but they don't touch it. And uh, Galadriel, she won't touch it. Um, and, then, and then Gandalf actually says, he says, look, the way of the ring to me, if I were to take it, it would be through pity and a desire to do good. But in the end, it would corrupt me. Uh, the only one that has a the only people that have a chance are the most humble. So the hobbits, you know, they're not they're not grand beings like you know, elves or something. But so it's it's hobbits that have a chance. But even even Frodo in the decisive moment was not able to relinquish it willingly. Providence had to intervene. The only person who actually takes possession of the ring and then willingly relinquishes it is Samwise Gamgee. Can I read a little part from that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and because he's the he's the most humble of all, and it's why, uh, yeah. Let's find it here. Page chapter ninety, chapter ten begins on chapter ninety-two, page ninety-two. Um, and it's it's so beautiful. What what. Uh, what Tolkien writes, I gotta find it here. So on page ninety-five of this book, so it, 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 this is a this is a beautiful passage on why Samwise, Samwise Gamgee, the gardener, was able to because he was tempted. If you remember, there's this moment where where he begins to fantasize. You know, the, the ring is working its power. He and he, he would be Samwise the Strong, hero of the age. <laughs> And uh, but but he he doesn't he he gives it back to Frodo. And this is Tolkien, or this is you know from the Lord of the Rings. In that hour of trial, it was the love of his master that helped him most to hold firm. But also deep down in him lived still unconquered his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, and not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. Now, some people might say, What's, what does it have to do with the cross? Well, what it has to do with the cross is we're constantly having to choose between the cross, the way of the cross, or the way of, let's say, the sword, or another metaphor, the ring of power. And so then I bring out, in, in the book, I bring out the point that, at least metaphorically, all of the heroes in Lord of the Rings have to go through some form of death. Gandalf actually does apparently die. You know, he falls into the, whatever he falls into with the ball rag and what is that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a full-on Lord of the Rings nerd. I've read it four times, but, you yeah. know, there's people, you know, that are <laughs> yeah. the thing. Um, but, but he, you know, he comes back, and he goes into death, and he comes back as Gandalf the White, uh, Aragorn has to pass through that land of shadow. I don't know what it is, but you know, he, yeah, the he mountain. To, yeah, yeah. They, they all have to, in some way, die. 
to be able to, you know, and, and, and in fact, you don't see it. If you've only seen the movie, you don't really get the fact that both Frodo and Samwise there on the slopes of Mount Doom are, are nearly dead. And they wake up 11 days later. They're, they're in a coma for like eight, for 11 days, exactly 11 days. And it's a, it's a kind of resurrection. So does the kingdom of God come through the cross or does it come through the sword? Does it come through co-suffering love or does it come through the ring of power? And we're constantly being tempted to reach for the ring of power, thinking, oh, that we, we can do good. It's, we're like, we're like Boromir. It's a gift. You know, if we just, if we can just control Congress, if we can just, you know, get, control the Supreme Court, if we can just get in the White House, you know, we'll do yeah. good. No, you'll be corrupted by it. You'll be corrupted by it. And, and the cross is the cross is the repudiation of seeking the way of war or and or political coercion to bring about the kingdom of God. And then in that chapter, I, I really take uh, Patriarch Kirill the task and describe him, and I think fairly so. I mean, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to say this, as kind of a real life Saruman, mm -hmm. sold his soul, you know, and and using the name of Christ to justify this horrific war of, you know, Putin wanting to be a new czar. Mm -hmm. I, well, I actually I actually yeah. spoke on this. I, I was I was like the only non orthodox speak at the Institute for Studies in uh, Eastern Christianity, sponsored by Union Seminary in New York. And I spoke on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they actually, most of them wanted me to. I think it was well-received, yeah. mostly. There were a few probably that didn't like it, but... Yeah. But, so anyway. Well, I got one or, one or two other things I want to ask you about before okay. that. I always love just asking, is there anything that we haven't covered in the book or just anything top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about? I come on to these interviews and these podcasts and I, I don't, ha I don't have an agenda. I'm here. Yeah. We, we can talk chiefs football if you want. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was a great win yesterday. That's on my mind today too. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. Uh, I want to, I want to close uh, by getting uh, kind of your, your take on uh, two quotes that really stood out to me. From the okay. book one kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier with, um, uh, with our, our, I guess our interpretations or, or our thoughts around the cross. And I, and I love it. And this is one of the things that I really appreciate about you, Brian, and it's true in this book and it was true in, um, when everything's on fire is I feel like you do a great job of just going like, this is the thing. If you're going to wrestle with something, this is the thing that you have to wrestle with. And I love how you say the most emotive and persuasive argument against Judeo Christian faith is not an argument against the existence of God, but an argument against the goodness of God. Would you kind would you mind just kind of yeah, elaborating a little bit on that quote? After I think it's entitled uh, God on the gallows. I think it's in that yeah. chapter. Well, the, the most, I suppose the most, difficult questions that Christians are tasked with responding to have to do with the problem of suffering, of pain, of evil. 
And, and basically the problem is this, if God is good and all powerful, why is there so much evil and suffering and injustice in the world? And then the attempt to reconcile our belief in God as revealed in Christ and the reality of pain and suffering and evil is called theodicy, that this is the attempt to reconcile this. And it's not an easy project. And so I, 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 I work a little bit with Dostoevsky. I've got, I've got a Dostoevsky t-shirt on my head. He older himself right there. But uh, I, who's a you know, big influence in my life. From the Brothers Karamazov, the chapter Rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor and all of that sort of stuff. Where, where It's interesting. Dostoevsky, as a Christian, sets forth the problem of evil as an attack upon Christianity with all of his might. So he's honest about the problem. But basically where the where the chapter goes, and then I also work with Elie Wiesel's Night, which, my goodness, is a hard book to read. I mean, hard, I don't mean it's difficult intellectually. I mean, you know, Elie Wiesel is a survivor of Buchenwald and Auschwitz, and but his none of his family survived, and, and the horrors that he saw there. And so I bring all that out in the chapter. If we have anything approaching a Christian theodicy, I think first of all you have to you have to make a certain appeal to free will. That if we're going to be autonomous, I mean, if we're going to be truly authentic beings and not just characters playing like as a movie in God's head, if we're going to be like real beings with freedom. Well, that opens the door for everything, and including evil. And then, and then we also go to the end, and we say, okay, that's the beginning, that's the alpha. The omega is we confess the apocatastasis, the restoration of all things, that the story's not over. But in between, in between the, the alpha free will and the omega restoration of all things is the cross, in that God does not exempt himself from the reality of suffering, he fully participates in it with us. So... So if through our freedom we are thrust into a world where there's the potential for all kinds of suffering and pain, God is there with us. He, he, Christ truly is Emmanuel, God with us, not only in birth, but also in struggle, sorrow, death. God is with us. And so I, I, I don't know that in my little brief presentation here I'm doing justice to that chapter, but I feel good about that chapter. I think it's a good yeah. chapter. Uh, looking it up here, it's it's fairly early in the book. Yeah. Chapter four, God on the gallows. It's actually the the two go together. Chapter three is God revealed in death. Chapter four, God on the gallows. Yeah. Well, the the last quote that I would love uh, you to just elaborate on is this one. You say, "In following Jesus, we will travel a road that we would not have chosen for ourselves." And just as we're closing, I would love to just. Um, have you talk a little bit about how you've seen that play out for you? Yeah, you know, the, the initial call of Jesus to discipleship, again, if we're not careful, these things can become cliche, but they shouldn't. Jesus' call is follow me, and then when he sets forth the terms, he often says, take up your cross. If, if anyone wants to be my disciple, great, but take up your cross and follow me. We tend to hear that in purely religious terms, understandably today. But but imagine the, the original hearers. I mean, there was nothing religious about a cross. It was profane. It was simply a means of execution. 
And so it, it is a, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, I want you to. Great. It actually is the road that leads to life. But be prepared to die. Because there are things you're going to have to give up. There, there, and, and, you know, in certain contexts, literal martyrdom is on the table. And so in one, I think in that chapter, I talk about Franz Jäger's daughter, a, a man that was put to death by the Nazis, an Austrian farmer who, who refused to take an oath to Hitler. I tell that story there, but that, that's a dramatic story. Um, you know, in my own life, there's been, I've been a pastor for 42 years of one congregation. And there have been times when I knew the Lord called me to begin to lead the church in this direction that would result in misunderstanding, in loss, in criticism. And it would have been very easy for me to no, 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 that's too costly. That's going to cost me. That's going to hurt. And I'll just, I'll just stay here, kind of just toeing the line. You know, and, and this happened. This is, I tell this in my book, Water to Wine. Uh, it would have been very easy for me just to stay kind of safely ensconced in the charismatic world that I was a part of at that time. But the Lord called me to lead our church in a new direction. And it cost. And we lost a thousand people. And it hurt. And I was criticized. And there was a kind of dying that was really a part of that. Um, so, and I mean, I don't want to, I mean, that's that's my own story. I'm not, I don't yeah. want to a lot of that right now. But um, that's, that's, you know, it's not Bonhoeffer. And yet, Sometimes you wonder. Sometimes it might be almost easier because, you know, okay, let them arrest me and hang me. At least it's fairly quick. The other is, you know, it just grinds on you and grinds on you. And, and just the relentless sense of loss and criticism, that's its own form of suffering. And so I don't, I don't, I don't know that we can compare those. I don't want to do that. That would be a mistaken venture, but, um, I don't think any of us uh, are exempt from in some way taking up the cross to follow Jesus. But what that cross will look like, it, it's different for every person. But it is part, it is inherently at the center of being a disciple. Mm -hmm. I mean, Christianity is not, is not a, it's not, it's not this project of self-help or, you know, you get a life coach and, yeah. How are things going to be better? I mean, Bonhoeffer said it better than anybody. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't say any better. When when Christ called, I think, is that the epigraph for that chapter? I'm going to look it up. It, it, that, that, I talk about this most in chapter five, the road of discipleship. And uh, no, it's a different epigraph. Um, this is from a hidden life, which people... If you haven't seen Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life, the story of Franz Jäger's daughter, please do yourself a favor. See this movie. I paint the comfortable Christ with a halo over his head. How can I show what I haven't lived? Someday I may have the courage to venture. Not yet. Hmm. Hmm. Well, 
I think that's a good place to wrap up our conversation. Brian, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get the book, The Wood Between Worlds. Where's the, be- where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Wherever you get books. I mean, I'm not saying it's in every bookstore, but it's in bookstores and, of course, Amazon and all the other, whoever you order books from, they'll, they'll have it. And, uh, I mean, it's seeking you shall find. It's not yeah. hard to find. Uh, well brian thank you for just the great conversation and just thank you for doing the work and for sharing this beautiful book with us good to be with you so coming out of that conversation with brian there's two things that i'm thinking about from it one is what we were talking about towards the towards the end of our conversation. And it's just this idea of picking up your cross and deny denying yourself and following Jesus. And just realizing that oftentimes that is an incredibly personal thing. That what looks like denying ourselves to one person is different for maybe ourselves. Or what denying yourself looks like to me might be different than what denying yourself looks like to you. And realizing that sometimes it doesn't, it might not look like a sacrifice to anyone but us. But we know. We know that it is. And so that's one of the things that it made me think about. The other thing is just this idea and we talk about this a lot on the podcast of where am i looking for beauty what am i what am i looking to in in art to teach me something or to show me something or am i so focused on on the technical aspects of it of the modernity of it of the practical of it am i looking to things beyond beyond that as well so and and that can be found in so many different things from stories to paintings to music to to so many different forms of art and so those are some of the things that i'm thinking about from this conversation if you enjoyed it please subscribe to the podcast and you can check out my Substack as well to where i have recommendations for some of the best things that i I'm currently learning from as well. And many of that, and a lot of those are different forms of art too that I've learned um, things about or things that have really stood out to me or um, they. I love how, how Brian said it. They, they've scandalized me. They've astonished me as well. So those are some of the things that I'm learning about. And I think that's all that I have uh, for today's episode. So thank you so much for listening to today's episode of The Learner's Corner. Thank you to St. Massey for creating the music for this podcast. And thank you to Brian as well for the great conversation. That's all that I have. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.